Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And today we have a special guest with us, and that's Dan Meehan. Dan and I first met a while back uh, with Shiloh Logan at Shiloh Logan's place. Years ago, we were both uh, in a more hyper-rational space than we are now. Now we're in a more mystical space, I think, generally speaking. And I lost track of Dan, and I've run into him again thanks to Riley. Riley invited him on the show. Yeah, I've uh, I've kind of crossed paths with Dan in several groups, and you know, we had the book club and whatever uh, that we had speaking about alchemy. And I've, I've just always been impressed with some of his takes on symbolism. And today we're going to be discussing a contemplative approach to symbolism. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity to invite Dan along. So Dan, would you like to give your, a short introduction of yourself to the audience? Yeah. So I, uh, Daniel Meehan, I am from Texas and I went to BYU, happened to meet up with, uh, I think at the time it was the LDS Freedom Society where I met Shiloh and a bunch of other people. And, and from that, I've definitely established roots that, that, like you said, going from the hyper-rationalist, you know, maybe Benson-esque patriotic uh, to where I am now in my journey, which is definitely more mystical than anything else. I think that would be appropriate to say. Well, welcome on the show. Thanks for coming for being here with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited as we've sort of discussed some of these ideas in the, you know, pre-show. I, I'm really excited about this. This is something that symbolism... Um, I've gone on my own journey with like personal symbolism and, and how it's affected me and, and how I understand it and my personal, you know, study of the scriptures and of the gospel. Um, it's definitely something that I've, I've come to appreciate a lot more lately as I've just had a lot more sources and availability and great minds to pick, including, you know, Riley and, and others in, in various Facebook groups. So let's talk a little bit about our relationship to symbols. Um, you guys both mentioned the hyper rationalist past that you've that that uh, migration of your understanding of symbols that you've gone through, where where symbols had a defined meaning for you before, and now you're more comfortable and reconciled to the idea of symbols having mystical or maybe even mysterious or undefined meanings now. But what what is where do symbols come from? What is a symbol? What is our relationship to symbols? Why are they important? These are some of the questions that I'd like to get to the bottom of. And maybe the best place to start is just saying, you know, asking, what is a symbol? Yeah, I think, well, any almost anything can be a symbol, but in a very strict definitional sense, you know, a symbol is a representation over a thought or an idea. And it's, a, it's a, some sort of way of representing that um, abstracted out. You know, and there are things that are things in themselves that are, you know, maybe symbols of something else. Um, to get a little more concrete, you might have an egg, and you could say, you know, an egg symbolizes, you know, 
what a chicken gives you. But in reality, an egg symbolizes, you know, a potential future chicken. That's sort of what it's pointing you towards. Yeah, and so you kind of bring to the fore this slight distinction we should make between different types of signs. A symbol is a type of a sign, as is an icon or an index, for instance. An icon is a type of sign that that looks like the thing that it refers to. So you think about a stick figure and a man, and the stick figure represents the man. Well, that's a sign that that looks like the thing that it represents, and that's an icon. And then you have an index, which is something that implies the existence of something else by its form. So you have something like a footprint representing a foot, and the the implication is is that feet exist because there's this footprint. But a symbol is something totally different and, and unique in the sense that the symbol in no way represents, and there's no obvious connection between the the signifier and the thing that it's referring to or the symbol and the referent. So what is it about symbols that, that draws us in? Yeah, I think symbols are something that, that we become culturally conditioned to. They're things that are things that we maybe see every single day and we may not even recognize that they are symbolizing something else because at some point, you know, the symbol sort of can become the thing that it represents. Um, An example of that, Dan, would be something like a, a red light, green light, right? Exactly. Red, red light means stop. We've just come t- to understand that red light means that, but we've, we haven't really thought through the process of why it, what is it that makes us think that red light means stop. I mean, there's no obvious connection there. Exactly. And that's something that you see, you know, with red lights. Well, it's also in red stop signs. It may also be used like restaurants will use the, you know, red, green, yellow ordering service. And red means, you know, stop giving me food uh, in the case of like a chascaria. Um, that, that, you know, red becomes culturally conditioned for us to mean stop. And that's not to say anything about, you know, there's nothing about red itself that means stop. It's just something that has become so pervasive in our life and in our culture. You know, if, if I was to take this somewhere where they don't have stoplights or stop signs, they would not understand how red means stop in that way. Um, it is something that it's the meaning that we project onto red that, uh, that, that we take that to mean something. I mean, I can't even consider a world or even, Imagine a world where green means stop. Yeah, it would, it's so it would throw foreign. you off. It's so foreign to me to think that way, right? And and yet it's so abstract. There's no reason why that should mean what it does. But we've become so culturally attuned to that meaning that it's just obvious to us. And it is it is the meaning of it, no matter what anyone says or thinks. And there's always some kind of there's some kind of development of this. This had to start somewhere. And it's interesting to think through that process. This is something that Mircea Eliade uh, did a lot of in terms of his uh, reach in scholarship was really trying to help us connect the stories to the meanings that we have imputed to those stories or even the symbols themselves um, and their connection to the stories going back for generations. And hundreds and even thousands of years until they've become almost biological markers within us. And that's, I think that's a unique contribution, but one that is, is valid and, and should be explored further. And so when you think about symbols, generally, there are the kind that we've just brought up that have 
so well connected meanings that we couldn't imagine another meaning being attached to it. And then there are some that are more open and subjective for interpretation. And and yet sometimes we we give them meanings and restrict what they can mean um, in, in the sense that we've started to make them as red light means stop or green light means go when there might be more there. Yeah, I think symbols, the risk with symbols is when you try and become too systematic about them. Uh, when we try and, you know, granularize every detail of every symbol and try and understand exactly what everything means. Well, when we when we grasp that, then what we do is we wring out all the potential meaning of symbolism. And so if we don't understand, you know, that red means stop and we just kind of, we, we make that a background to what the actual meaning of stop is, we, then we risk, you know, losing the meaning stop itself. We may... We may now not have stop, we just have red. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your journey through symbolism, understanding symbolism, how that how your understanding has changed over time and you know what systemizing or systematizing symbols did to you? Yeah, I, I think I noticed this early on um, when I first went through the temple, I you know I mean it's, it's hard to go through the temple and not see that there's a lot of symbolism in the temple. Um, there's plenty of things in the temple that are symbolizing something else. And so at some point on my mission, though, uh, someone basically brought up the idea that, well, okay, you know, not every little bit of everything means something else. And I, it was a time when I was kind of obsessed with the the idea of the, the seal of Melchizedek, um, which is a, a symbol that's you know, all over the San Diego temple. And I was sort of abstracting out all the, all the meaning for that. And someone basically kind of, you know, poured the water on my fire for, for what symbolism means. And so for a while, I just sort of let symbolism come into the background. Um, I wasn't focusing on it. I wasn't, you know, writing notes about here's what this means. And, you know, oh, I found this, you know, verse in Exodus about with this number that happens to match this number. So maybe that means something. Um, and I simply had to step back and allow myself to just go to the temple and not try and ring out that symbolism in everything. Um, and over the past few years, I've come to really appreciate how the spontaneous understanding of some of these symbols have come to be for me and how that meaning has been a lot more meaningful because I, again, haven't been trying to force the meaning. It, it's one of those things that if the symbol has no connection to what it represents, then our understanding of the symbol can't always be logically reasoned out. That's a great way to put it. There's, there's really two approaches or schools of thought when it comes to symbols. There's what we referred to in the last episode as kind of an orthodox and heretical approach to symbols. The orthodox being that that meaning that we've imputed upon the symbol over generations to the point where it just has, you know, achieved or assumed that, that meaning, that cultural meaning. And any time you go out of step with that, you're, you're kind of venturing into the mystical approach, the, the, what some might call the occult approach to the symbol. The Gnostics were kind of known for this, I guess. They would take a symbol that had what was considered a well-known meaning and flip it on its head and and go the opposite route, and it forced you to think differently about symbols. And I, so, I mean, my own personal opinion is there's validity to both of those approaches. And it got them in trouble. Totally. Right? Yeah. What would you say to that, Dan? Yeah, uh, 
when when we move outside the orthodoxy of symbols, we definitely do a disruption. Again, it, I mean, to go back to the red, if you change red to mean go in some context, then what do you what do you do? You create confusion. I mean, you can just imagine like racers at a starting line. If you you know have three, two, one, and then put up a red light, what's going to happen? People aren't going to take off. Like they have to break that connection of that that automatic connection in their heads between red and stop because they want to go because they know it's the start of the race. And uh, I'm not saying that you know the Gnostics quite did that, but it it may be that when we are willing to sort of challenge some of the orthodoxy of some of these symbols, we allow ourselves to rewire our brains a little bit, uh, which I think can be useful when we, especially when there's sometimes symbols that are so ingrained in us where we've imputed a lot of meaning that may not be actually right at all, or may be, maybe something's changed in what the meaning originally was versus what it is now. You know, and t- it occurs to me that in taking a contemplative or mystical approach, we don't have to choose one or the other, right? We don't have to. It's not either or. It can be both and. And so we can allow ourselves the freedom to explore different meanings and still hold the orthodox meaning at the same time. Yeah, that's particularly true of contemplation because it's really just an individual meditation on these ideas. Whereas if you take a symbol that's that's well established and you flip it on its head publicly and try to give it new meaning, you create a lot of confusion in society and and you lose the value of symbols in some respect because one of the great values of symbols is that they have common understandings and that people can operate with them more efficiently than if they were to go straight to the meaning itself and have everything explained to them. So I hate just keep going back to the same symbol over and over and over but let's say instead of using red light, green light, we actually had the words stop and go. And let's say you've got someone who's illiterate and they come to that stoplight and they don't know what to do. You know, I mean, they can read a symbol more efficiently than they can read the words. And we don't want to lose that. There is, there is a utility to symbols. It's interesting to note that for those who are colorblind, that those those traffic lights are set up in an order, right? So that they don't have to identify the color, uh, that the colorblind uh, people don't have to identify the order. They can, sorry, the color, they can just go by the order. And, you know, these things are universalized. I mean, even you go, you have signs like uh, stop signs that have a certain shape anywhere in the world. Even if you can't read the the Arabic, say, although it's funny because they're often in English, even in the Arab world, you still have the shape and you can identify the shape from farther away than you could read either language anyway. And you just know that means stop. Yeah. So the symbols do have utility and we don't, we wouldn't want to disrupt that from a communal standpoint. We still want to be able to have the utility of symbols um, to help us operate more efficiently. But from a contemplative standpoint, I think it is valuable to, to look at things differently. We'll have to go into some examples that aren't about stopping and going to really... (laughs) Uh, to get somewhere with this conversation, right? Yeah. Well, let's... Well, let's... That, that's the duality of symbols. It's, it's all stop and go. Okay. <laughs> well, when, when, you, I, when you pair these things, I mean, often in symbols, I mean, you, you paired symbols are, are very common. I mean, you think fire and water, you have clothed and naked, you have light and dark. There is a duality in symbolism. And the, the thing is, I'm not very big into duality. 
but I am very big into unity. And the fact is that when you have these symbols, it's really hard to say stop without pairing it with go, because if you only have the symbol for stop, well, that doesn't always mean anything because you can't just stop. You also have to go. Uh, so they're really, a, it's, it's really a compound symbol in one in the case of, you know, the, the traffic light or any other one of these things. But uh, by exploring why you have sort of this let's call it a lobed unity uh, with two lobes or a bimodal unity maybe uh, would be the, the right way to describe it. Um, there are many symbols that are paired in this way where we think it's a, a duality of opposites, but they're really a compound in one. Well, let's talk about the symbol that really makes this um, a thing, this dividing asunder, the, uh, the judgment of, of one in context of the other that, that creates paired opposites. And this one of the earliest symbols we have, at least in the Christian tradition or in the Jewish tradition, is the sword. And it uh, it's a symbol of of division and and duality, contention, dividing asunder, judging between pairs of opposites, good and evil. In fact, it uh, it guards the way of the tree of life to keep someone f who has partaken of the tree of good and evil from partaking of the tree of life. Um, in a metaphorical sense, it's it's keeping someone who's trapped in the world of duality away from unity because it, it itself is the symbol of dividing asunder or or division. Christopher, what do you have to think about? What do you think about this flaming sword? I know you've thought about that one a lot. I was going to let Dan go next, actually. I'll just let Dan go next. Yeah, so the, the flaming sword that that guards the tree. Um, it's interesting to me because both fire and swords would be in this case, dangerous to a tree. Um, because, you know, you can chop a tree down with a sword or you could light it on fire with fire. Um, and yet those are the tools or implements by which this thing is guarded. Again, showing you that you might have this context of, well, swords are used for you know, dividing. And the sword feels like it's dividing you from the tree. And fire is used for, you know, burning and destruction. So this fire is creating something between you and the tree. But in reality, you have to understand the symbol that that, that sword is a way of, um, that, 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 that sword represents that contention and duality, that, that division. It's not itself creating the contention and division between you and the tree. What about the fire? The fire is um, something that may look like it's separating you from the tree, but in the same way that you know we we see forest fires, people sometimes think that and forest fires are a you know very destructive thing um, and cause you know lots of damage and, and property damage and lives lost. But forest fires are also a natural phenomenon. It's a way for the forest to take care of itself, to clean out the dead matter, to revitalize with new life, and so we both have something that is destructive and horrible and awful. And yet we have something that if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have new life. We wouldn't have, I mean, we'd have forests covered with things that just uh, we would never get cleared out any other way. Is there a sense in which that applies symbolically to us then? I think our, our fear of fire, how do we see it? If we see fire as something that's destructive, and so if we see fire as a as a barrier, if we see fire and recoil, or if we see the sword and we recoil at the sword, um, in this case separating us from you know the the tree of, of knowledge, um, 
we see those things as, as barriers instead of seeing them as things that are within us, that it's not the sword and the fire that are keeping us from the tree, but it's our conception of the sword and our conception of the fire that keep us from partaking of the tree. And that's the tree of life, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think in terms of the purifying nature of fire, if you think in an alchemical context, now you have that the fire is actually to, meant to purify you so that you can get past that sword, which again is the representation perhaps of the of that division between you and the tree of life. Yeah. And so in this conversation, you know, we want to, I think we want to talk about just what some of these symbols can mean and yet leave the interpretation open and at the same time to notice, you know, to, to have a contemplative approach here, to notice how we deal with symbols and how, and, and how we make meaning out of them and what they mean to us and how we might consider other possibilities. Right? Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Dan, in the pre-show, Dan, you, you mentioned that we have this relationship with symbols where we're always resynthesizing these symbols and giving them new meanings, but yet the old meanings still have a lot of influence on on how we use them and as tools, uh, efficient tools for for functioning in society. But this resynthesizing process, it, it speaks more to the contemplative side, where we think through what they can mean. Yeah, I wonder, Dan. You know, in with what we've already said about you and I, what we've said about the the sword and the flaming, you know, and the fire and 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 what that has to do with us and the tree, what would it look like then to to try a different approach to that same subject and this resynthesizing that that Riley mentions? Yeah, well, I think this is why symbols work so well is because they are things that we interact with on a, a regular basis, if not, you know, a daily basis. And in the same way that we are pattern-seeking machines, you know, uh, the, there's the phenomenon called pareidolia, I think is how you pronounce it, where you see faces in, in you know, just like a rock face or, or something. Um, in the same way that we are pattern-making machines, we are also symbol-making machines and, sim- and meaning-making machines with these symbols. And so as we go through our lives, we may have a symbol that means one thing and then as we have new experiences this symbol can now have a new meaning and we we have to resynthesize the new meaning with the old meaning and maybe i mean that may never that may never happen uh or may not comfortably happen um in the case of you know the the sword and the tree i or any other case you know if you have an example from your own experience whether you've resynthesized or whether you're still uncomfortable and trying to resynthesize, either way, we'd love for you to share. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I, I did a series on um, in in order to help me understand more symbolism. What I did is I went through the major arcana of the the tarot, and I went backwards through them um, because I had sort of read and understood them roughly forwards. But as I went backwards through them, I. I saw some parallels and and things that um, I hadn't really stuck out before. And the card that I think stuck out most to me uh, was um, the wheel uh, and how it turns and how the the tetragramon maps onto the wheel and how you have these four corners of the wheel. Um, that's one that I 
I don't have that transcript handy, but as I've thought about it, you know, the wheel as a symbol, I kind of always thought of as like a hardworking, like I, I would just think of the pioneers. It represented industry, you know, sort of movement pushing along. And so when you see a wheel, to me, that's what it's, I, I was stuck very much in the sort of Mormon handcart sort of uh, phenomenon. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Exactly. But as I've studied more of the wheel, I see it more of a cosmic phenomenon and the life, death, rebirth. And and it's not so much physical work, but it is kind of a, a work. It's a spiritual work of, again, you know, you have to rise and fall and that you have this ever upward progressing, you know, wheel that's no longer just transporting it but it is transporting still but it's not transporting across the planes but it is transporting across the astral plane or not the astral plane per se but you know it's it's transporting across space and time and you have this ever onward but now i've seen it as like well is it actually is there actually a difference between the pioneers crossing the planes and the cosmic wheel upon which we turn through our experience where every day, you know, we make ourselves and then we die, you know, I don't think that there is anymore. But when I first had that sort of experience and had to recontextualize the wheel from, you know, Mormon work ethic to cosmic symbol of, of, uh, the basic balance between light and dark, um, I, I did have that. So that is one that, that has changed a lot for me. Uh, and now when I think about wheels, I, which I, don't do often, but I do often enough. Uh, I have to recontextualize things for myself still. That's a great example. Thanks for sharing that. Another one that you brought up yesterday when we were kind of discussing some of these ideas was this this thought of possibly reversing the modality of a symbol from the object to the subject or and reversing it from the subject to the object. And you brought up this example in the temple of how we go maybe either from room to room with one room being lighter than the next or within the same room, the lights going up, up, up as we move through the, the celestial levels. And, and I can't remember if it was you or Chris, one of you guys brought up the idea of, of sunglasses. You want to talk about that for a sec? That's something that I borrowed from our sister podcast. Ben and Shiloh talked about the, um, you know, the idea that instead of that it might be a better representation of of what is being symbolized in the temple if we actually took off sunglasses if we had if we were wearing more than one pair of sunglasses and took them off as we progressed because the light is always there it just it's just a way of doing it that would show us that it's not that the light isn't always there it is always there we just don't we don't see it we're not aware of it but there's a meta narrative there that i really like about symbols in general and how we relate to them and whether the symbol changes or whether we change or whether we perceive change in the symbol from that's coming from us rather than a change in the symbol itself, I think that's an interesting approach to symbols. Yeah, I mean, if you, well, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but if you conceptualize light as knowledge, um, which I think is maybe one of the, the most obvious representations of what's going on there in that phenomenon in the temple, um, you know, how would you, how, what, what are the knowledge sunglasses that maybe we're always wearing and that when we learn, is it really that we're getting more knowledge or are we simply removing the blinder, you know, that we already have, uh, to something that we already know. I, I think about, um, you know, 
Truman, I think it was Truman Madsen who spoke all the time about, you know, when we get knowledge, what is that actually? And how so much of it is just a remembering. It's not really a learning. It's a remembering. And, you know, um, which then makes me think, well, what do I use sunglasses for? You know, and are sunglasses a symbol? You know, when, when I see harsh light, how many times is my first reaction to, you know, grab the sunglasses to block out some light? And does that mean anything about when I want to get new knowledge? Do I immediately reach for my spiritual sunglasses to block that out? That, that maybe is, is a bit too far in the contemplation, uh, you know. Uh, no, I think that's a great question. I think that's a great question, Dan. What would that look like? Why would you do that? Well, this is how I operate in my understanding of symbols, and this is how I generate. Well, what does this mean? Is I, it's it's a bit spontaneous off the top of the dome. You you have just witnessed this in real time. How I think about symbols again, I just thought about sunglasses, and my immediate reaction was I always put on sunglasses when bright light comes on, and then I thought, well, I just talked about how bright light is knowledge, and what does that mean if my reaction to getting knowledge in this form of bright light is to put on sunglasses, and this may be something that it's it's a practice that I have refined and learned. Um, by allowing sort of that, uh, it, you have to get used to being in your own, own imagination. And sometimes when you speak it out loud, it sounds a little silly. But if you're willing to be a little silly and sound a little silly, um, it can work whether you, you know, are doing it on a podcast or whether you have a journaling or whether you're doing it while you read the scriptures or if you're doing it in a conversation with friends. Uh, as you generate meanings for symbols, you'll find more and more meanings. And I think the way that you know if it's meaningful or not is, are you continuing to generate more meanings? Are you creating more spontaneous connections between these things? Um, and are your friends also, you know, getting feedback and recognizing those same things? So if we were to push you further then, Dan, what would that mean that you put on spiritual sunglasses when confronted with new knowledge, further light and truth? What does that mean? Well, I don't, I don't want to, that's one of those things that I don't want to look at too hard, which unfortunately I think is a representation of putting on those spiritual sunglasses. But in my mind, when I'm putting on sunglasses, I'm doing it to protect my eyes from the sun. And yeah, there, there is, you know, real, that is a real and good reason to wear sunglasses. But metaphorically or symbolically, it does feel like, hey, when you want to, or when you have a harsh truth revealed to you, your first reaction is not always to incorporate it. Your first reaction is many times to just whip on the sunglasses. That is the layman and lamuel response, right? The the wicked take the truth to be hard. Uh, and and we all take truth to be hard at one point and another. Um, that is sort of, I guess, what a meditation practice might be in the same way that when we meditate, you know, you allow yourself to separate that moment between action and reaction, right? Well, when you're when you're receiving knowledge, you know, and you want to whip out those spiritual sunglasses, sometimes you need to pause and create that space between action and reaction. And for me, Man, I love it. Yeah. For me, I think it is definitely like, oh yeah, I do that all the time when I am trying to study the scriptures and there's something I'm uncomfortable with. My reaction is to continue to read. And maybe that's the way I put on spiritual sunglasses as I skip over a verse. I just keep reading past it. I say, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm just going to keep going. To um, kind of riff on the theme, you know, it's interesting to note that when we first step outside into the bright sunlight and we put on our sunglasses because we've just come from a darker place into a lighter place. And yet it 
with given time, we can become more comfortable with the brightness of the light and feel comfortable in taking off our sunglasses. And so maybe it just needs time, right? Exposure. Yeah. Exposure, yeah. Yeah, and light, as it turns out, you know, is one of the most important things in the world uh, <laughs> in terms of what it does for us and for everything around us. Um, so if we're unwilling to face the light, uh, then I think that that should definitely raise some flags for us. And uh, I mean, light, I know we had talked about maybe going over some symbols. And again, light's one of those where it's like, I don't think that we could, you would have to spend the entire time talking about light and all the ways that it means something and, you know, the biological uh, realities of light because light is both a thing and a symbol. And what does it symbolize? Well, just about everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I would love for us to spend a little time in continuing to do what we've done and sort of giving some possible meanings of symbols. And yet more importantly, and, and it's great to have you with us to, to show us this in real time, even with new uh, ideas that you're just coming up with on the spot, you know, uh, with the sunglasses, to actually think together about and to notice together about how we actually interact with symbols. Because, you know, there... Again, we have sort of orthodox interpretations. You have the commonly understood interpretations, but there are other interpretations possible. And I think if we just could just go through some examples and see how this works and notice, right, and contemplate these symbols, that it might be useful for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Are there there any that you wanted to pick at? Or I, I personally want to stick with the sunglasses thing because I've got an interesting question. I didn't have a place where I can kind of insert myself there, but um, I, I think the sunglass metaphor is useful from, from both sides, from both perspectives of, for instance, when you were talking about reading scripture, how the scripture was received and communicated, put on paper for people who read it, and how it's read by someone who's studying the scriptures. There's there's those filters or lenses, which I guess is another way to represent the sunglasses on both sides of that. And, you know, when the scripture, for instance, comes through Joseph Smith as the conduit for that, he obviously has his own cultural lenses or filters, um, biases, whatever you want to call them, that that flows through. And we're getting the Joseph Smith version of of what that revelation consisted of, not the experience in itself. It's a process we talked about last episode um, when we discussed reification. So there's there's that. And, and then there's the part that you described, Dan, which is when you're reading the scriptures and it, and it becomes uncomfortable for you, you know, are we, are we ignoring that? Are we putting on the filter or lens? Are we just sticking with our own interpretation and passing right by that because it's uncomfortable? And I think that the wrestle with God that is mentioned in the scriptures all the time is the process of of figuring out the truth that's somewhere in between there. Or do we even notice? Because Dan's talking about noticing, being uncomfortable, and, and putting on those sunglasses. What if we put on the sunglasses without even noticing? What if we have them on the whole time? And I, I, came, I thought of a word that I think is fitting in describing these sunglasses in, in this context, Riley, and that's paradigms right these are these are our paradigms and so we see things not as they are but as we see them and how we see them has everything to do with our own cultural conditioning and our own personal experiences yeah it's it to to put it that way is so much better than using the word bias which has almost a nefarious sound to it it's like that you're you're doing something consciously when in reality the paradigm is largely unconscious 
but noticing it is what contemplation is all about. And in order for that noticing to take place, you actually have to take time with each one of them. And so I loved earlier when, when Dan, you described this as, as a cognitive meditation, because you actually have to take time to sit with it and notice it so that you can really understand and comprehend whether there is a filter or lens between you and, and what's trying to be communicated. Yeah. How do you notice, Dan? I, I think oftentimes I'm oblivious. How do you do it? I, I, again, I would actually just have to credit daily, regular meditation. Um, but, you know, not to, not to go too far off of, of speaking of symbols. I mean, we have, we have the symbol of sunglasses that we've, we've talked about, but there's also the sim, what does it mean to put them on and take them off? I think that, you know, in this context, we have, we have a pretty good idea of, of what that means, sort of spiritually putting them on or taking them off. And so how would you recognize if you have your spiritual sunglasses on? Well, you can only do that if you take them off. Um, you know, Oh yeah. That really, that's it right there. That, that is a scary thought. That is a, a really uncomfortable thought. Have you ever worn sunglasses on a road trip? Sure. How late into the night does it take you to take them off? <laughs> too late. Right. It's, it's way too late. Yeah. And then when you take them off, even though it's like eight o'clock at night, how bright is everything compared to it? And do you realize like, oh, wow, I have been driving at like 50% capacity because of the voluntary choice I made to wear these sunglasses. And sometimes you even spend a lot of money on those sunglasses. I, I mean, sunglasses, I don't know if they still are, but back in high school, they were like a, a you know, style icon. You know, people had Oakleys and Ray-Bans and all those sorts of things. And, you know, people would spend a lot of money on sunglasses. And this was at school where, I mean, you almost never needed sunglasses at school. So I, I think that there, there may be something there as well in terms Ooh, of... Ooh, there is. Yeah, I mean, because why do you put on those sunglasses and it's to look cool, right? Mm-hmm. And so looking good is is such a big deal in our in our culture. I mean, it's not exclusive to our own American culture per se, although it may be more predominant in this culture than in others. But it, it's the opposite of I think it's the opposite of contemplation, right? That, not, not to be present to what is, but to be putting on airs, yeah, appearance, pretending to be something that 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 isn't, right? I I think of it like when we're in Sunday school and we want to share a comment that is a quote from a president that we know will fit just perfectly. And will basically the teacher will be like, yes, that's great. And the class moves on. And what have we done? Well, we've, we've got our sunglasses on to show like, hey, this is how well I know the gospel, or this is how much prep I did for this lesson. And everyone can look at me and Hey, look, that is cool. I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I like you know cool sunglasses. They look cool. <laughs> That's fine by me. But is that going to distract you from the fact that you're inside in an LED lit classroom where you don't need sunglasses on right now? What you need is to open your eyes to the lesson and take the sunglasses off. Man, Dan, I love it. Look what we've done. Look what you've done for us. You've taken us now into a different sense of sunglasses and what they mean. This is a great well, example. Yeah, Thank it, you. Yeah. This is, this is, for me, how, how symbolism works best, is allowing yourself to spontaneously generate meaning. And that's a lot of sort of, as I've taken a more mystical approach to things, I have had to let spontaneous generation of meaning take place and trust that, hey, at least 
you know, the, the basic spiritual and human conception of who I am is someone who is able to generate symbolism and is able to generate meaning from symbolism. And you kind of have to trust that, you know, improv is, is leap first, you know, land later. Uh, and a lot of times when you're, when you're studying the scriptures and you're looking for these symbols or you're trying to generate a contemplative practice, well, a lot of times you have to contemplate first and care later about the result of the contemplation. I love that example. So improv, the rule of improv is say yes, right? And so what we can do, and and going back to the other meaning of sunglasses that that we were using earlier, is to say no by putting on sunglasses, right? And to refuse to look and see things as it's been proposed, not as they are necessarily, but just as it's been proposed, a new way of seeing things. Which, by the way, a new way of seeing things, this is a symbol that was used by Christ, right? The idea was that everything should become new. Yeah, um, yeah, he, he, you know, I think one of the, one of the symbols that has stuck out most to me from Christ is you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And that is, for me, the, one of the most masterful symbols that anyone has ever taught with, because I have never drunk wine. I don't really know, but I can think and conceptualize. I can see that happening. And I don't have to think very hard to imagine why you wouldn't want to put new wine in old, you know, wineskins. It makes sense. You don't want to put new stuff in old containers, hardly ever. Um, but for me now, that just generates such a graphic image of this thing bursting and someone losing, you know, wine and it's staining everything. And it, to me, it just generates, again, you have to kind of get in this imaginal space and allow yourself to conceptualize and see this. And it sticks with me. And I think when, when Christ uses those sorts of symbols to teach, he knows they're going to stick with the people and he knows that they're going to be powerful images so that the next time they go, you know, the, how often did they drink wine every day, right? They're going to go home and drink wine tonight. And what are they going to think? You know, how old is this wine skin that I put in? What is this new wine? You know, and you have to think about, well, is this, what is the new wine that I'm putting in? And hey, why am I keeping around old wine skins? You know, you, there's, there's so many layers to the symbolism of things that you might have to interact with every day, like sunglasses for us. Um, you know, I, I have a pair of sunglasses in my car right now. And I just am thinking like, should I throw those away? <laughs> like, do I need to get rid of them as a way to symbolically remind myself to, to be comfortable? I don't know that I'm there yet, but maybe I've, I've had to think about it already a couple times in this podcast. Dan, you mentioned a, a term that really stood out to me. That's imaginal. This is such an important concept, right? Because thinking back to our own past of this hyper-rational way of being or thinking versus, and it comes really from from the scientific revolution, right? We lost the magic worldview. We lost the that um, dis, there's that discarded image that that C.S. Lewis refers to in his essay by the the title the discarded image which is this different way of seeing the world that we're we've pretty much lost track of as a people in general it's something that we've that we're intentionally trying to tap back into right at, at you and I and, and Riley and and it's this contemplative mindset that the imaginal is so important to right so how does how does that how is that something you cultivate how can how can one cultivate that imaginal mindset um, I don't know. Are you are you familiar with Gary Lockman? Um, I know the names. Books. 
Yeah, he's written a lot about sort of occult history, uh, but he has a book called Secret Teachers of the Western World. And a lot of it is just sort of like, hey, here's some Neoplatonists, here's some Gnostics, here's, you know, Madame Blavatsky, like sort of very iconic figures. But one of in the first chapter, the thing that stuck out most, and I wish this was available free online somewhere, but if not, it's it's pretty worth buying just for him to describe, hey, we have our left brain and right brain in us, right? And and we know that the maps, I can't remember off the top of my head, left brain is the logical, rational uh, hyper real, right? And right brains, the creative, imaginative, spontaneously generative, right? And we know that we can access each of these separately, that we can intentionally yeah. do this. Exactly. But he said, one of the things that he pointed out is he said, well, these aren't just things that we have within us. They are things that we have within the cultures that we are in and cultures from time to time value one over the other. And essentially, Post-enlightenment, we've been all left brain, and we have allowed that left brain not just to dominate, but to go back and say that all right brain was wrong and bad and unscientific, and we only view things through the scientific lens, and if we try and go through another lens, well, that's just mystical, occult, voodoo, you know, but in reality, if you go back and look, and that's one of the things that he then spends the rest of the book talking about is, is the secret teachers. I, I mean, he covers, again, everyone from uh, Dante to Plotinus to various people who have existed in this right brain space and how they have contributed to society and how when we allow ourselves to get in this, again, it's, it's, an, it's an imaginal space because it's like a hypnagogic state almost that you're awake but dreaming. And when you allow that spontaneity to occur, well, then you see that symbols do generate themselves spontaneously. And you are able to make connections between these things that you you do not make another. There's not an A plus B equals C, therefore C minus B equals A. That is not something that occurs in the imaginal space. In the imaginal space, it's more like a dream, like Lehi, where he's like, I was walking and then I saw a tree, there was a rod. You know, you, you nothing about those things is inherently linked to each other. It's very much a dreamlike state where things just are. They pop into being. Is that Manly, The Secret Teachings of All the Ages? Is, is that the book you're referencing? No, no. So Manly Hall has The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And, Manly uh, Hall, yeah. Yeah. Gary Lockman has The Secret Teachers of the Western World, I think is okay. what it's called. I, I may have that wrong. Um, but he, I think he was the bassist for Blondie. Um, but he's oh. written, yeah, he's written several very good books about the occult and occult history. Interesting. That, um, if you have any interest in this, I go go buy them. They're really good, and he is, in my opinion, one of the top scholars, modern scholars of the occult. Cool. One of the things you bring up, Dan, that's really interesting to me is is this idea about uh, entertaining and giving space for the for the imaginal. And when you look at the seminal, you know. Um, most influential people in the history of the world, most of them in some sense are visionary. And, you know, I mean, Joseph Smith and his family, they were, they were described as visionary. And, and most of the, even people who are somewhat analytical in terms of their approach to solving problems can still be considered visionary because they allow space for imagination to give them that, that creativity that takes them beyond what already is into what can be. And I think that those who fit into that category of, of 
or I'm not going to say category, but give space to their right brain, to the imaginal. Um, they really push us into another dimension of understanding and realization. And, I, you know, I was just thinking in my own life, the times when I've given the imaginal space to flourish within me, I've, I've derived the most individual personal meaning out of that. Um, some people might write off dreams that they have or what, whatever. For me, I pay a lot of attention to my dreams and I give them the credence that I would give a daytime vision because they, they come from somewhere. They're coming from within, uh, you know, this soul right here. And if they originate there, there's something there that's causing them to come to the fore. And so I can think of two of the most personal and, and important things that ever happened to me were both of them in dreamlike states, in visionary, imaginal space. And I've yet to come to full realization of what the meaning of those is, but for some reason they carry a lot of importance to me, even, even though I haven't fully fleshed them out. There's a topic for a whole other conversation, Riley. Dreams. Yeah, I I did a little episode on the the hypnagogic state. Um, again, just to sort of help organize my mind, like uh, Watson and Crick, the organization of the DNA, the DNA structure. Um, they saw that in a sort of nap like state. I know there's dozens of artists and uh, novelists who have used that sort of hypnagogic state, and I think that it's because it opens you up to that freedom of free association and symbolism, uh, which I think is important and key. It's, um, it's, it's something that I've had to learn in my life, but as I've learned it, it's changed my life. And is this, that something we can spend maybe the last uh, 10 minutes here on is, is getting into how to do that? Yeah, I would say the most practical advice I could give you would be to go to an art museum and just stare at art. Uh, that is one of the first ways that I learned it. I was actually, this was back around that time I was in the hyper-rationalist state. I also had a friend who was very much into uh, the esoteric, esoteric uh, ideas, and he and I would talk all the time. And he encouraged me to go look at more art, which was something that I wasn't super into. Uh, but I went and looked at more art. And over the years, I have gone from really not enjoying art and not really understanding it. Like sometimes it'd be like, oh, I like that piece. Like that's a cool, I like how that's depicted. To now understanding why people will stop and stare at a painting. Because when you look at the painting, you're not just looking at what is painted, right? You're looking at what is put into the painting. What, what the person saw that they then were able to put on the painting and then what was going through their mind and their emotions and well what if this painting was just a frame of a movie and then you can study the details of the painting and try and figure out well where would this go from here and that is to me one of the easiest ways to give a little seed for creating this imaginal space if you just stop and stare because the nice thing about painting is you don't have to rely on your own imaginal state which can be hard to cultivate um, you are able to look at something hopefully beautiful and have that be the the seed from which things sprout boy i love where that's going i love that you have you you're confronted your well your rational self is confronted by um the work the product of an imaginal self right exactly exactly um 
you you do have to and then also there's there's another thing where they also had this symbolized in their mind and then they put this to paper so you're at multiple levels and you kind of have to ask yourself sometimes what filters you know again in the same way that scripture is given and then it's received art is you know thought and then painted and then it's received there's multiple layers to this that again if you allow yourself to consider all the through lines from all those spaces you can find yourself sharing a mind with the painter and i'm not saying that you're actually understanding what they were thinking but if you imagine that you were there with them in their mind you can create things and it doesn't matter if you're right that he chose to paint this flower blue because it matched the flower that he saw on his morning walk it, that doesn't have to be correct but if you have a thought like that pop up in your head that's a process of generating symbolism generating meaning that you can then allow to grow and allow yourself to connect more since we're talking a little bit about uh, occult earlier and kind of mystical interpretation, you know, I recently read an article about uh, the CIA studying things like as woo-woo as astral projection and and being able to match up a wavelength with someone on the opposite side of the planet and know exactly where they are based on your wavelength matching with theirs. And, you know, obviously that's out there for a lot of people, but the ideas you bring up now are very similar in terms of like trying to get on the same wavelength through contemplation with the artist, for instance. And I very much understand what you're saying. When you stare at a painting long enough and, and you're taking it in, you start to project outside of yourself into the space of the artist and relate to them in a way that's completely different than our rational minds are used to. I think, I think uh, Christopher said it in our pre-show that the things that are most personal are most universal. And the more that we personalize things, so when you're looking at that art, the more that you are willing to personalize it, whether in your own mind or trying to connect through the mind space of who painted it, or in, in the scriptures, whether it's in your own mind or putting yourself in the mind space of the people who received it, the more that you are willing to do that and the more you are willing to personalize it, the more universal it will be both in understanding and in application. I love it. That was a quote, by the way, from Stephen Covey. That's right. Yeah. Well, in this conversation about symbols, we've we've kind of we've gone all over the place. It's been interesting. It went it went a place where I didn't expect it to go, but one that's been really gratifying for me to start to understand the power of symbols, and not just the thing in itself, but the approach to the symbol and how you might uh, derive meaning from various approaches to symbols that we that we see and use every day. So it's been very valuable to me, and I, I very much appreciate it. Yeah, you've given yeah. us a lot to think about, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, well, this is, this is, to me, the power of symbols, is that it allows you to, again, just generate constant new things. And if you are appropriately using symbols, you know, sometimes you'll get in the same patterns, but sometimes you will find entirely new ones. Dan, is there anything uh, that it occurs to you or that you could or would generate in terms of symbolism or meaning in closing this conversation? Anything you'd like to say in closing? You know, um, I'm looking at us on, on this Skype call and I, we all have these over the ear headphones and it is a way of blocking things out and yet connecting each other. And it, it feels, 
there's something to be said about, you know, things that you don on your head because the head is, is where you direct your focus, right? Like the, everything that you perceive from the world, sound, sight, smell, taste, you know, those are all in your head. And so right now it is great to be sharing a mind with you too. And I think that that is part of the reason that this worked so well. I love it. Riley, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I, lo- I, lo- I want to close it right there. That's a, cool, that's a cool analogy to use. It is. Thank you for being with us, Dan. Thank you for having me. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. See you next week.